also like to welcome everyone here this morning to our day of Dharma, meditation, reflection. And also like to wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, I'm glad to, to be here. It's been, uh, my father came from Dublin and I grew up in an extended Irish family in London. They came over to find work and they all worked for Guinness. Um, <laughs> so we had a lot of Guinness growing up. Everything, tea towels with Guinness, ashtrays with Guinness. We had, every, everything was, had Guinness stamped on it. So I don't like Guinness, but <laughs> I, I had my first pint of Guinness when I took my mum back to Dublin um, last year. Um, and uh, we went to, they have the Guinness Brewery, and I said, well, why don't we go, and then you can go up to the seventh floor, and they give you a free pint of Guinness at the top, and then from there, you can see all over Dublin, the River Liffey, the whole thing, and I, I said to my mum, well, this is going to be my first half pint to, uh, to, uh, just to honour the ancestors. And it wasn't too bad, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, spirit of the Irish. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to take a little bit of a journey this morning um, as we enter into the topic, which is freeing human consciousness, freeing our consciousness, but to something I've been reflecting on a lot about how it's difficult for us as, at this particular point of our, where we're living in, a, in the midst of an extreme and profound planetary crisis which has its roots in the human mind and how it, it's difficult to, or we're hindered in fully responding as we're shaped by ways of thinking and being and patterning that, aren't, um, that are tinged with old stories and narratives, ways that we filter the world that, um, that disable us from responding fully, um, fully from our hearts, mind and bodies to engage not only inwardly our process awaken, of awakening, but also externally as we're within systems that are both um, breaking apart and also oppressing. So how do we also look at awakening, not just uh, from our personal perspective, which is how it's usually framed and often framed within our Buddhist practice, but also as an extraordinary unfolding that's going on through the collective journey of human consciousness. And not only human consciousness, also consciousness of plants and trees and animals and uh, all, all things, all things that are in this journey of awakening. And Ajahn Chah said, uh, our teacher said a very interesting thing that, uh, you know, sometimes when we think of awakening, we, we think of it, as Carl Jung said, as imagining figurines of light. Um, it's a sort of a transcendent space where we don't have to, to worry about the world, we don't have to deal with anything. Um, but Ajahn Chah said, you know, think of, you know, don't try and be a Buddha and a Bodhisattva. If you want to be anything, then rather be a, an earthworm, because at least they're useful. Yeah. <laughs> what he meant was, he didn't mean not to aspire to awakening, but what he meant was that the earthworm is, digs down in the mud and goes through the patterning and understands uh, where we're coming from, what we're growing from, and from that the awakening can emerge. And so that's a different kind of a movement of a journey than trying to bypass um, the mud of, our, of the ground from which we've emerged. And so I just want to touch into some of that journey of going down and through into deep time and looking at some of the conditions that have brought us to the crisis that we're in now and underpinning our collective external crisis, crisis around climate issue, you know, the, the warming of the biosphere and the overwhelming uh, nature of that, changing our weather patterns, these freak weather patterns and the denuding of, um, of great forests and the crashing of our ecosystems and then the you know, increase of divisions that are happening and exacerbated um, here and in America and across the planet and nationalism and um, the vast discrepancies of wealth and all, all of these things are, are, amount to an enormous challenge for us. 
as human beings, but underlying that really is a crisis of consciousness. It's like how we, right from the very seed and the very core of how we understand ourselves is being put under a microscope. Um, and that we have a particular consciousness that has evolved from seeing everything as an object to us, an object that we, that we want or that we fear or that we desire or that we can manipulate or that we're in some kind of complex relationship with. So just to explore a little bit of that objectifying consciousness, how when we hold things as an object, as separate, we don't really see what is. We're seeing often through the filters of our conditioning. And then we're reacting to often to our own, the, the projections of the mind in terms of how that has been, how the mind has been conditioned and patterned. Uh, for example, you know, you might... Um, like I remember in South Africa, we had, one day we had a young Zulu man um, came to us um, that was really, really, he was living at our place and he was terrified. And what he was terrified was, was of, of a frog that was in the garden. Because in, in his culture, a frog wasn't just a frog. It, was a, it had the power to, to generate uh, very unfortunate circumstances. So it, 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 it represented something negative. And this was a very strong young man that could tackle so many different things, but he was like a, he was like a piece of jelly, very, very upset. And so we, we, we got the frog and we took it away. But really it was a contemplation for me. Is, is the problem the frog? You know, or is it the way that the mind has been conditioned and it projects onto something and it's not really seeing what's there and then it starts to react to its own projections? And in a way, this is a metaphor, a story just about all of our minds, that it's very hard to really see each other as we really are, to see what's happening, because often we're just caught in the projection of what we think we're seeing or projection of our fears and desires, and then we're reacting to that. So when, when we're caught in that dynamic, we don't really have a freedom of inquiry, a freedom of conscious awareness. We don't have the full spectrum of our capacity operating and responsive. We're caught, we're imprisoned, the mind is in within a wall. And that wall is often tinged by what limits us. So often our conditioning is, is um, very unconscious to us when it comes to systemic levels. Um, you know, we, we have this amnesia uh, where we, we often forget where we've come from and what the roots are of the situation. And I think that operates very strongly in the um, American metaphor uh, of the culture where there's a lot of um, forgetting. Uh, so I thought I'd start this morning by remembering, uh, remembering uh, this land here and being interested in this land and who was here and what was the story of this land before it became New York and this extraordinary, uh, vibrant, alive and dynamic city which represents so much um, to, to, to so many billions of people across the planet. <laughs> it holds a sort of iconic um, space in people's minds. But once upon a time, not so long ago, it was called Manahata, as you will know this, of course, and in this area, the Lenape uh, tribe lived. And it's said that at once upon a time when they were here, it was a place that was rich with natural resources. It had an abundance of fruits, nuts, birds, and animals, that fish and shellfish were plentiful, that the ocean was full of seals, whales, and dolphins, that migrant birds flew to local marshes based on available food supply and weather conditions, Lenape called the Hudson the Shatemuk, meaning the river that flows both ways. It has been said that Lenape sold Manahata to 60 Dutch guilders, about $24 in our present currency. However, that was how it was understood by the early Dutch settlers, that there was a transaction. However, the Lenape didn't see the transaction as an official handing over of one thing for another, another. They saw this as sharing the land with the settlers. That was their understanding. 
But of course, as we know, that those understanding and those um, were a misunderstanding and an assumption, and already the beginning of the taking over uh, through desire, and the uh, eventually leading to uh, what became by the the, the mid-1600s, the conflicts that arose between the native peoples and the settlers around trade and resources. And many of the Ninapi dying from diseases brought by Europeans. We know about that story too. Um, sometimes deliberately infected. I don't know about this situation here. But by the time the English had taken over and renamed New Amsterdam with New York, um, and the, by the time it came to the early 1700s, those Linapi who had survived the impact of the European arrival were forced out of Manahati um, and had to go elsewhere. So now when we look at where we've come from and we look at, we arrive in a place um, as we train our awakening and we train our conscious awareness wherever we are to look beneath the surface to train our view so we don't only just see the contemporary culture and the fashions of the time, but we see the roots of what's gone before and what's emerging um, from those roots. Um, as we start to realize the structures that we live in now. In many ways, the Buddha said, you can take all of the root of the systems that we live in that, that were lived in within his time and that we live in within now, um, that, there's a, that much of what brings about our crisis is driven from the roots of the human mind, caught in the desire for greed, caught in the lust for power, caught in the violence born of hatred, and embroiled in the disasters and the destructions born of, born of delusion. So these great forces of ignorance tinged with greed, hatred, and delusion are the very forces that emerge from within each of our minds. And it is this that the Buddha said that we should pay attention to because the projection of the mind is really what we experience as the world. And so if we want a different world in which we all strive to bring about a more loving, a more connected, a more equitable, a more just world, then we can't really do that divorce from looking at consciousness itself and what fuels and imbues the worlds and the shapes and the systems that we live within. Even the greatest systems that we've thought up, the greatest ideologies um, that we've had and that we've experienced in the last hundred years or so, you know, when we think of the ideology of communism, it was a great ideology. We all share everything. But as we know, that led to totalitarianism and vast oppressions and um, enormous famines. And so if we, even, even the capitalist idea in many ways started with the idea of creating wealth and has had many, many um, benefits, great abundance that we're all sharing in now. But if we haven't really understood that the, the roots of the mind that we bring to these systems is still, that it's still tainted by these forces of separative consciousness where I'm looking after the, the self and me and mine and my tribe over and above the rest, then we'll, even if we generate the most perfect system with our great technologies, we'll still generate these very primitive forces of destruction and greed and oppression and violence. So at this juncture, we have a great task, really, um, a task to understand and to take the time to return to the roots of this mind, to contemplate its nature. Last night, Kirisaro quoted from the Shurangama Sutra, which is a sutra that appears in the Chinese lineage of Buddhism, where he talked about the two roots of the mind the mind that seizes upon conditions. This is me, this is my shape, this is my identity, and I am this way, generated through our thinking and our narratives and our way that we define ourselves, which we know is complex and multi-layered. 
And in many ways, there's nothing wrong with those definitions, but it's the, the core identification at a very deep level, which is mixed with delusion. And then this primary root, which is, the, which is, as is said, that the mind, not really knowing as its own nature, not really knowing its own nature as primordial, formless, pure awareness, pure consciousness, undifferentiated consciousness, not knowing this, mind not knowing this as its root, seeks to identify with an experience. And in that process, the experience of the moment shaped by moments of thinking, feeling, memory, perception, and so on, moments of sensory consciousness, me experiencing this, the five skandhas or khandhas, as it's called, this leaning into, this movement towards finding a sense of self, that then needs maintaining, needs satisfying, needs protecting, needs to have an empire built upon itself. <laughs> so this, this fundamental mistake, this fundamental not knowing the true nature of formless consciousness, as the profound ground of the mind, there's always this sort of movement towards something, this movement for seeking a home. And so this is really at the heart of our, the, this seeking, uh, the Buddha called avijja, and which literally means not seeing, usually translated as ignorance not really seeing clearly the nature that everything that we move to build our home upon is already in a state of change. Not being driven by the, the force of the patterning of the mind, the assumptions of the mind, the conditionings of the mind, the uninvestigated narratives that shape our life, the views that we have, not really investigating those there is this moving into the sense of I am this, which is what's called taking birth, having a shape. And if I am this, then that comes to be. There is this, and then there is that. There is the arriving of the settlers in the 1600s, or so 1500s, whenever it was, and from that the causes of that came to be. The causes of what's still with us now came to be. Every time that the mind moves from the most subtle intention around objectifying the other, then we land up somewhere in historic time from a subtle sense of me and you and the difference between us and the justification of those differences, we land up with genocides, we land up with wars, we land up with institutional racism and so on. But this is all born of the mind. These systems that we live within when we contemplating the freeing of human consciousness, we have to understand the internalized structures that actually shape our conscious self and how they're tinged often with this lack of investigation. The structures that Bell Hooks talked as, the structures that we live within are primarily imbued with an imperialism, a racist or white supremacist, metaphor, a capitalist economic structure, a patriarchy, all of which are internalized. Imperialists, this sense of America's great, <laughs> Britain was great, <laughs> and then it wasn't. <laughs> now it's a mess, and actually so is America. You know, this sort of, this nationhood, what's that? Or as Eddie Izzard, a great, um, comedian says, says in England, you haven't got a flag? Tough luck. Then this is our land. Not so funny, actually. Have you got your flag? You know, so this nationalism is a, it's a powerful way that it shapes human consciousness. And we all pride. You know, I feel a little bit of pride. Today's St. Patrick's Day. I feel a flag for my, my dad and my family and my Irish aunts and uncles and cousins and but, you know, I also can feel, oh, as a flag for the British side. 
that's quite complex, <laughs> more complex. <laughs> but you know, so this, uh, this this nationalism that we have. I mean, it's not bad to have pride in our nation, but when it comes to to feeling then that we're better off, that we have rights over, that we can invade, that we can build empires, then these have consequences, and the consequences of that process over 500 years of colonization we're still living with. It's still going on, where we have to, in some way, build that colony on the degradation of another. The racist supremacist, this idea within that, that one race has more value, more rights, more worth than another. This is very, very present within the structures that create our internal narratives and conditioning. You know, what's, what's called a sort of um, a subliminal conditioning. So I see that when we lived, we lived in South Africa, 23 years we've been working there, and I'd like to think I'm not racist, <laughs> but I could really see that I'm actually conditioned racially, a race, and therefore there's racist conditioning that would be unconscious and became imbibed. Working in a system, when you're in a system, going in a post-apartheid country that was still very, very influenced, still had the very deep psychology of apartheid operating within it. I noticed after several years, the way I started to think and the way I started to look, started to be conditioned through an apartheid metaphor. I didn't like that, I felt shame in it, but I realized I had to acknowledge it before I could see it and unpackage it. Now I gave an example of, and it's a very light example, I think there's heavier ones, of in a recent article that was published in Buddha Dharma, I was talking about this whole territory of going in a supermarket in KwaZulu, so there in deep rural area where we've been working, often the the white community holds the land, holds the wealth. The black community is in servitude. That's the old system, and much of that still exists. And, you know, finding myself in the role of the white madam, which I found very uncomfortable, but everyone relating to me like that. And then one day walking into a supermarket, and there's this old, old Zulu man, and he's pulling out a basket from the pile of metal baskets. And as he pulls it out, I'm just walking past, and I take it and say, oh, uh, bonga, thank you. And of course, he looks at me, and I look at him, and I realize he's pulling it out for himself. And in that moment, the unconscious internalized racism has happened, I've assumed that he is a, a worker and I, it's in a feudalistic system and I am the recipient of his work. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a shattering moment. I felt very embarrassed. I apologized and sort of crawled around the supermarket. But when I got over my reaction, I realized it's really, really important to explore how these systems, even beyond our conscious mind, shape the brain. And you don't even see it operating unless you really have the extra interest in inquiring how those dynamics happen. How we have to deconstruct these assumptions that are learnt. They're not innate, they're learnt and conditioned in. How the capitalist, this tremendous power of technology and capitalism and wealth, that we, that we have um, benefited from and that are living within, but it's, all, it's built on some very, very profoundly uh, wounding um, actions that have taken place over hundreds of years. You know, the decimation and the, un the, the right to think that we can extract from land and from the animal kingdom, that they are objects to us. Um, that we can actually extract from peoples. I was interested just now to be staying down in the Lower East Side, just next to Wall Street, and walking past the Stock Exchange, which again is another iconic, very highly energized sort of matrix place, a sort of center hub, all this, you know, around which one feels the Western world and the world operates and spins, one of the hubs. 
And I was, when we were walking past there, I remembered a piece. I was write, asked to write an article for an Italian book on um, economics and ethics and um, justice and so on. And I was doing some research, and I came across this art activist, Nona Faustine, who's African-American. And she did this art piece outside the Stock Exchange where she stood naked on a platform in this ill-fitting pair of white shoes. And she called this art piece, From Her Body Came Their Greatest Wealth. From Her Body Came Their Greatest Wealth. And she said, standing there at the exact spot where they sold African men, women, and children 150 years ago, I found myself at the curtain of time between two eras, past and present, and I went into deep reflection. I love this um, deep reflection because it reminded me very much of the Heart Sutra taught by Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin. When Avalokiteshvara is pointing to Sariputra, who's the great enlightened being of the Theravada, and saying, look even deeper, look deeper. You know, Sariputra was the king of wisdom, the right-hand disciple of the Buddha, known for his profound wisdom. But Avalokiteshvara, Avalokiteshvara means the one that regards sound the one that deeply, deeply listens, which is a, a profound meditation practice. Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin is saying, Iha Sariputra, be here, be fully here, and look more deeply. Keep this deep reflection, coursing the depths of the mind. This is the activity of Prajnaparamita, depth wisdom, coursing the depths of the conditioned mind and the unconditioned. From the unconditioned, when we understand the unconditioned mind, the deconstructed mind, the free mind, we're able to more fully contemplate the conditions. What enables us to see these systems operating within us is not just trying to change the package, oh, I'm not really that, I'm a nice person, or through our shame oppressing, but actually unpackaging as Ajahn Chah said, being that worm, going through the mud, unpackaging the structures, and then knowing this isn't really who we ultimately are. These are conditionings that shape now our present sense of self and the systems we live within. Conditionings that, you know, we're good, we're better, we're worse, we're useless. And we have a, a mixture of these that operate in very profound ways. So this great capitalist endeavor has been based on the profound objectification of nature. As in the 1500, one of the early rational scientists, Francis Bacon saying, nature, bound in service, wounded in her wanderings, put on a rack, tortured for her secrets. Which is still the metaphor we're living within, whether it's nature or the animal kingdom or the plant kingdoms, or the trees, the waterways, the mountains, with their tops being blown up, or the lands, like in Johannesburg, mined for the gold that we're all wearing. <laughs> you know, this, this come from this, this worldview that nature is dead, inanimate, that animals aren't conscious, that they're not, they're things like bricks, stones. But even in some worldviews, ancient worldviews, even stones have consciousness. All things have consciousness. Or this, this internalized structure of the patriarchy. We think, oh, you think you're a man, you suddenly feel like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not that. <laughs> but this, isn't, this is about gender, of course, which hugely impacts gender, identity. But it's, also, it's primarily about the belief that we own, we can own, we have ownership of another. It's about a hierarchy of power, which is also, we have these pyramid power structures that deeply influence our human consciousness and deeply undermine our ability to pick up our power and engage and challenge the madness of what's going on now. Who's in charge here? We defer. We have deep, deep patterns of loyalty to the king. I know you dethroned the king in America, but you've created some others in this place. 
you know, because it's so deep in the human psyche. You know, this, this, this hierarchy of gods over humans, men over women, white over people of color, humans over animals and natures. You know, that these are the systems that are, are built really on enormous acts of violence and oppression um, and enforced servitude that are, that are all emerging from this dualistic mind I mean, many, many wonderful and creative and beautiful and inspiring and aspirational and artistic and um, innovative technologies and healing and enormous things have also emerged from this amazing mind. Extraordinary, extraordinary. I mean, you look at Brit. We were walking the other day under between Brooklyn and Manhattan Bridge, going as Kisara said last night to look where his ancestors, his, his, his dad grew up and his mum and dad that came over from Russia as immigrants. I was like, I just look at these bridges, how do you build something like that? You know, really, this is this extraordinary mind, the human mind. How do you send a space shuttle up into space? How do you build an iPhone? So there's this extraordinary creativity, but there's also this tremendous blind spot around the ongoing um, devastation of where this wealth and this capacity, the roots of it and where it has come from and what perhaps reparations need to be made around that. As a British author um, who studied and wrote many books about the slaving trade, he talks about Another author, another British author, who wrote a, a novel called Sacred Hunger, it's very worth reading, where he talks about the violence of abstraction, how we abstract from the reality of what the impact is of how we are living and what our lives are built upon. And so this, in the novel, this, the slave trader is trying to induct his son into the trade but he's trying to avoid the sheer brutality of what's going on. And so he says, picturing things is bad for business. It can choke the mind with horror if persisted in. So we have graphs and tables and balance sheets and statements of corporate philosophy to help us remain busily and safely in the realms of the abstract and comfort with a sense of lawful endeavor and lawful profit. We have maps. So this, the... Um, Redeker, the author, also describes as unworth uh, violence of abstraction that has played our study of the slave trade from the beginning. It's as if the use of ledgers, almanacs, balance sheets, graphs, and tables, the merchant's comforting methods has rendered abstract and thereby dehumanized a reality that must, for moral and political reasons, be understood concretely of what one group of people was willing to do for another for over 400 years for capital and how they managed in crucial respects to hide the reality and consequences from themselves and from posterity. Numbers can occlude the pervasive torture and terror, but European, African, and American societies still live with the consequences and multiple legacies of race, class, of multiple legacies of race, class, and slavery. The slaver is a ghost ship sailing on the edges of modern consciousness. I, I love that line. The slaver is a ghost ship sailing on the ed edges of modern consciousness. And this, you know, if you look at denial, the human capacity for denial, which is another way that our consciousness is shaped. Just don't look at this. I remember again when we were in South Africa and we were in the middle of the AIDS pandemic, which was terrifying when it burst open with such rapidity and such devastating consequences. We were again deeply in the rural community that had no understanding of what was happening, semi-illiterate, deeply under-resourced. Um, and then dealing with this very sophisticated virus that was very hard for them to get a handle on, especially in a culture where talking about sexuality was taboo. In a deeply patriarchal culture, women had no rights. So, you know, we were engaged in this process, but one of the first um, movements 
that happened was an upsurge of um, grassroots organizations that transmuted from the struggle of, against apartheid into supporting um, the um, response to the AIDS crisis. But what happened on a government level was 10 years of denial as official policy. We don't have AIDS. And that was a very terrifying period to live through because during that period, at least 5 million, if not more, died. Um, many, many millions of children were orphaned. Um, and the consequences, of course, still continue to this day. There had to be the um, taking of government to court seven times uh, by the treatment action campaign and the, the pharmaceuticals to court to access affordable drugs all of which was won out as tribute to the South African um, court system and the constitution, a post-apartheid constitution, which is extremely liberal and evolved constitution, which was informed actually, interestingly enough, by some, uh, Gandhi was there for 20, 21 years, but also a little bit from the um, Buddhist understanding of Ambedkar. So it was a very strong Indian community that was involved in the shaping of the constitution, as well as African and all races. But this denial is, we have that now at government level. No, there's no climate change. And building policies on denial that are catastrophic. Um, so it's a very, very deep function in the human mind. And we can rage at the denial at government levels, and we should, but we can also not forget that we have our own mechanisms of denial that operate very nicely for us every day. Just for example, looking at a cell phone. I was struck when I was doing this investigation for this um, piece for the Italian book, um, as an academic piece that, you know, looking at the, the slave ships that came over from Africa, 10 to 12, million people over a period of 400 years. I mean, that's quite an activity of denial. And everyone involved in it, it wasn't just the merchant bankers. It was like everyone had shares in this in Europe. You know, every housewife had a share in the trade. It's huge, huge. And you can't divorce the wealth of the Northern Hemisphere from the plundering of the Southern and from Africa. So, you know, looking at this and then looking at the ships, how they, in the end they had nets to stop people jump, because people would jump to, they'd rather suicide than be in these ships. And so then they put nets. And then I was interested as I started to look um, and at what was happening in China in the contemporary capitalist paradigm that's, that's burgeoned there with great speed and alacrity and happening at Foxconn, where all our Apple gear is made, and seeing that they too put nets outside of their building to stop people from falling, who are jumping from, from windows, who in many ways were undergoing the same level of oppression, not perhaps so deeply disunrooted, but as deeply impactful. This is a poem. I swallowed a moon made of iron, they refer to it as a nail. I swallowed this industrial sewage, these unemployment documents. Youth stooped at machines die before their time. I swallowed the hustle of the destitution, swallowed the pedestrian bridges, life covered in rust. I can't swallow anymore. All that I've swallowed is now gushing out of my throat, unfurling on the land of my ancestors into this disgraceful poem. This is Zhu Lizi, worker at Foxconn. Can we bring this ghostly ship at the edge of our consciousness into the matrix of our contemplation as we consider what all of our daily lives is built upon? So this, in many ways, if we look at the time we've arrived at now from these deep roots, and it's just naming a few, um, you know, the pioneer countries um, emerging out of enormous displacements of peoples, which is what America is um, throughout time and space, 
um, in this deep, deep um, consciousness that's based and rooted in from time immemorial, the Buddha said when he was asked, what is the beginning of ignorance? He never answered. How can you answer such a question? There's no beginning and there's no end. There's no beginning and there's no end. Um, it doesn't mean to say that we have to be subjected to ignorance. We can contemplate it. This is what he taught. Be free the mind from ignorance. You know, that this is the path of awakening. There are steps on the path that we can apply. Otherwise, we're, sub- we're, we're in a way, we're experiencing the culmination of this separate, the highly individualized self, completely divorced from any sense of deep belonging in deep time and deep responsibility to each other. It's sort of deep narcissistic madness. Whereas when Trump says, it's all about me, you see that interview when he was just saying, it's all about me. You know, this sort of, it's all about me is where it leads to. And in some way, it's a very venal and degraded and despotic and insane, corrupted place when it's all about me. It's a loveless place. It's a toxic, moral decrepitude. And this is what we see in our contemporary metaphor when it's all about me and it's not about anyone else. It's not about caring for the commons. In, in England, before the, um, the Norman Conquest in 1066, it's what we used to um, study in school, <laughs> we used to have the commons. The land was owned by everyone. We still call it, we'd still have little patches of land to go, we'll meet you on the commons. Um, and uh, you still have that term. But there aren't really many commons left. I mean, 97% of the land is owned by the crown and the aristocracy, the emergence of the um, class system. But this, this loss of the commons, the loss of we're here together, uh, you know, and the, the, the upholding of this fruition of the individuated self without any love, without any connection. It's a bit like King Thoradin of Rohan in Lord of the Rings under the guidance of his advisor, Wormtongue, where he's just really completely devoid of any conscious aliveness, any wisdom, any recognition of what's really going on. So we've reached a sort of culmination of a certain insanity and it's led us into um, a very very difficult place this is Rilke you darkness that I come from I love you more than all the fires that fence the world for the fire makes a circle of light for everyone and then no one outside learns of you but the darkness pulls in everything, shapes and fires, animals and myself, how easily it gathers them, powers and people. And it is possible a great presence is moving near me. I have faith in nights. At the heart of all this, even in the most difficult moments, whether it's individually when we're at our most despairing place and culturally and systemically and globally when we've reached a most profound crisis, there is a a possibility also within that there is a turning that can start to happen because we recognize as the Buddha did on the night of his, before his awakening when he had explored the path of pleasure to the extreme and the path of pain to the extreme And that moment when he realized, might there be another way? (laughs) There must be another way that we do this. And I think, you know, usually we've interpreted this journey of waking up out of dukkha in a very personal way. To realize, as the Buddha said, dukkha or suffering is not something that we avoid, but we turn to, that we contemplate, that we investigate, that we meet that we know, that we feel, that we explore right to the depths of it, as I've touched in today. It's not just a 
an academic thing. It's actually something that we explore personally and systemically and profoundly. So we know all the shapes and the labyrinths of where the mind will go in all of its madness and all of its separative need to survive in these fragile homes of its own creation. So this is the journey of meditation. It's not just to look at the peaceful and the lovely, although that is an important part, but it's to understand and meet the difficult, the challenge, to explore the causes of dukkha. And to know that there's a faith at the heart of this, there's a faith of that which is already in the depth of the yang is the yin, and the yin is the yang. The depth of the extremity, there's already the turning, returning to health. You can feel it in our culture. You can feel it, say, in the uprise of the children, the Me Too, the, the sort of momentum of the wave turning, the tipping points being reached. You know, when, when countries are, um, I think the Paris COP21 agreement was an attempt to say, we are here together on this planet to understand ourselves as a collective, not just as individual nations. It's like an evolutionary moment and that if we are going to survive as a human civilization, we're only going to do it by supporting each other, by working together. There is no me, me only anymore. In some ways, what we're looking at, make this nation great again, which we're seeing various places here particularly, is a sort of almost like the last dinosaur movement of that old consciousness. You know, as it's collapsing, as it's in its decrepitude, it is creating a lot of destruction and pain and division, but it's not going to last. That which is false, as Nisargadatta said, cannot last. Only reality is the enduring thing. I've been very struck by um, the spirit of America in its ideal and in those that came here um, from so many different places as they emigrated, their ancestors and the peoples before them, grandparents, parents. It's always been something since I've been coming to America since 91 um, that, that has um, moved me. And I, I remember the first time I went to Ellis Island, which was a long time ago, and then seeing all the peoples pouring through with their suitcase, one suitcase, leaving forever the lands that they'd come from, often on the run, often from extremely difficult circumstances, and then getting the chalk mark on their coat, a tick for yes or a cross for no, being turned away. Um, and just somehow I understood something about America, this, this great ripping of peoples from their roots and the great desire for belonging and the difficulty of that, the great need for identity that we all have. And yet this great spirit, like just going yesterday with Kitty Sorrell the day before when we walked down to um, Madison and Market, to look at the tenement building where his father grew up and where his grandparents came from the pogroms of Russia. And just looking at now, it's Chinatown. And so there's another wave of peoples coming in. Or the east end of London, where my uh, parents, uh, my mother's side came from. And they grew up there and they, they uh, you know, at one point that was a Jewish quarter and now it's a Bangladeshi quarter and now it's the Yemen and Iraqi and, you know, like how each wave or where I grew up in, uh, in the part of London that was Irish and then it's become Indian. It's these great movements of peoples through these, particularly these urban areas and these enormous spirit. I think of my father leaving at a young age to try and make his way. It wasn't He couldn't get to America. He didn't have the money. <laughs> so he came to London, you know, from Dublin. You know, these peoples that came from enormous struggle and poverty that were very near ancestors, our, our parents, our grandparents. And what an enormous uh, spirit of survival that is. Even, even the, the peoples of the First Nation that were so decimated in these lands. I had the um, great uh, 
privilege of going to Standing Rock and being there on the ground with the first gathering of all nations that came together from the Northern Americas that were represented at Standing Rock. It's the first time in their history. And they said that their ancestors of 200 years ago had predicted that this is going to happen. They had buried in the land prayers for this moment of peoples coming together to withstand against what we are now standing up, um, what we are now facing, having to stand up against this enormous destruction. And there it was the pollution, the potential pollution of the Missouri River, which, you know, downstream, 50 million people that gets the oil pipe breaks underneath that river. It's not good news. And for now, it seems that they didn't exactly win, but they, they're just a part. There was a huge part, a huge gathering, this enormous um, coming together of peoples in a decolonized space. It's very rarely to experience a decolonized space. It was the first time probably in my life that I've experienced that where the, you know, just all the meetings, all the meals, the people that went first were the indigenous people, then the people of color, um, the children, um, then, the, then the women, and then a lot, sorry, white guys. <laughs> it's, in some ways, it's not personal. It is personal, of course, because we're at the receiving end of a, 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 a sort of momentum of karma that impacts us personally, that therefore we have responsibility for. Um, and to actually be in this space um, where there was this extraordinary expression of human freedom, human empowerment, but from a very particular kind of energy. Um, and this was really um, resonant with the uh, energy of this fundamental root of the awakened mind, where it's said um, by Thich Nhat Hanh, what is that root? What is that about? We can realize it, you know, when we meditate, we can taste it, taste it as that which is such, present, peace, always here and now, timeless, not going anywhere. When the mind releases from its grasping, there is that. There's nothing else. The pure essence of conscious awareness. Timeless, expansive, unbounded, unquantified, to be tasted by each individual for themselves. People would come to Ajahn Chah and say, what is Nibbana? And he said, what is a banana? <laughs> you peel a banana and eat it, you'll know. You know, if you want to know what Nibbana is, then practice and you'll taste it. It's not difficult. What's difficult is the complexity of the thinking mind. That's the difficulty. Nibbana is actually the radical recognition of our natural nature. The simple recognition of our simple state of being. It's peaceful present, here, naked, no agenda, not having to go anywhere, not having to manipulate anything. So this, this internally and externally, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, we're here, this is our agenda, this is our awakening curriculum out of the madness of where we find ourselves and from what's gone before. And it's not to hold what's gone before with judgment. We've all been part of something. We've all still part of something that's oppressive somewhere to some being or other. But our awakening curriculum to awaken from our separation, the illusion of our separation, in Avalokiteshvara's enlightenment, in the Shrangama Sutra, she, he declares, her mind, the mind is equal to all the Buddhas, and identical to all living beings. This is the awakened mind. That mind is deeply resonant with what is in each moment, deeply receptive, deeply knowing of all things as innate to its own nature. 
it's not knowing through objectifying and thinking and holding something as another and out there. That's one way of knowing. That's our predominant way of knowing. And that's the way that we negotiate our world. You know, we have names for everything. But this other way of knowing is we're dropping beneath the cognitive and beginning to move as the fulcrum from which we live and move and be within as this fundamental, receptive, sensitive, naked, ever-present, unagendered, timeless awareness. Just here, just present. Or as Nisargadatta says, that which knows it does not know, which is free from memory and anticipation, is the timeless. Doesn't have to always know something, doesn't always have to have a meaning. The other night, um, two very dear friends of ours took us to see an art piece in the Brooklyn theater by Meredith Monk, which is like making sounds. And I never experienced anything like that. I don't know if you know who that artist is, is sound artist, movement artist. And the whole performance was making sort of no, there were no words, there were no storyline, there was no frames. It was just these really unique human sounds, like in relationship, a few performers in relationship to each other. And it went on for about an hour and a half. And at first I just thought, I don't know if I can survive this. <laughs> And then I started to contemplate and realize this is a meditation, you know, just to be with these sounds, just to be with this process. And I could see, I started to feel this sort of very uncomfortable feeling in my body. And I was contemplating, I realized how attached I am to meaning. I wanted it to mean, and then I started making up meanings. Oh, that means that, this means that. And then I started to make this whole narrative, and I realized it didn't mean nothing. It might have done, but I didn't know what it meant. You know, and, and how difficult it is for us just to be purely with experience without creating a story and then living in that story and then being imprisoned by that story. This is why it's said in the Heart Sutra when Avalokiteshvara is teaching Sariputra to course the depths of the mystery with an unknowing, knowing mind, just present. We don't really have to know everything by making a perception and a cognitive frame, just experiencing just how it is in this moment. Experiencing the unconditioned, the unformed, the unoriginated, the timeless awareness that you're using to know the experience of phenomena. So I don't know what that is. Well, you're using it all the time. <laughs> you wouldn't be alive without conscious awareness. It's a bit like if you go to a cinema and you're watching a movie and it's so completely compelling and you sit there and you're crying and you're laughing and you feel upset, you feel overwhelmed. But then you might think if you slow that movie down, it's just frames. Moments of color, shape, form, sound. But then if you look behind, you see, oh, it's being projected. It's being pro the frames are being projected. But then if you look behind that, there's just light. There's a, it's dependent on light. Projecting the, condition, the, the, the particularity of how those frames are put together to make a story, to make a movie that then we cry about or laugh about, or we give an Oscar to. It's the same as the mind. We have the movies that we cry about, that we laugh about. Then behind that is the projections of the mind, projecting from these deep systems and conditionings and frames and narratives and what we've been told that we are, what we've been judge ourselves to be, what we deny, what we're shamed by, all of these prisons of the mind. But what is actually projecting that? You can see the light of awareness. The light of awareness can contemplate that all things are resident in our awareness. There is no ultimate separation. All things are seamless. 
reality is seamless. You cut out a piece and say, this is New York Insight. Well, who said that? This is me, this is you. Well, that, that's good. I mean, I'm glad we said that because otherwise we wouldn't be here this morning. But this is a conditioned, this is dependent on that. It's a conditioned phenomena arising and passing. So that mind that's just contemplating deeply the matrix of phenomena, the living web of life, is not participating in a power system anymore. It's not beholden to have to uphold any system, really. It can uphold, choose to uphold a system that's kind, caring, has values in it. But it's free to contemplate, to investigate. This is a free consciousness to undo its own conditioning. And from that freedom, that deep freedom of conscious awareness, that conscious awareness is deeply wedded into the living Dharma, as Ajahn Chah would call it, the intuitive intelligence that's ever arising as wisdom, wise reflection, wise guidance, intuitive knowing, depth understanding. This is what the master, where the masters live. They live from that space, not from the personality building an empire on the sands of time. So when Kirisaro met Master Xunhua, a Chinese teacher for the first time at the airport when he had flown over with some monks to San Francisco and the monks from the city of 10,000 Buddhas came down from Ukaya with Master Xunhua to, to meet with Kirisaro and the, 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 the contingent that had come from the monastery in England. And then Kirisaro saw the master. So overwhelmed to see the master, he so loved the master. Been reading his teachings for years. He just got down and bowed at the airport, and then he stood up. And he didn't know what to say. What do you say to an enlightened master? So he said, "Do you like it here?" <laughs> and then he felt an idiot for saying that. And the master said, "I like it everywhere. Why wouldn't I? I like it everywhere." Yeah. Or as um, Neem Kauri Baba, a great enlightened sage, known through mostly through Ramdas, is asked, you know, people come to him and say, how can I be enlightened? And he'd say, serve people, love people, feed people. Oh, but, but surely you've got something more complicated than that. <laughs> or when a friend of ours who practiced with uh, Master Shinwa from the very early days when he first came to um, San Francisco, 1960s, 70s, he said it was a bit like when you were in contact with him, it was a bit like his mind was like the cosmos. It wasn't bound, it was just out there, vast. And then you'd come up and you'd ask him something and it would like, he would just, it was like this huge space, you just like focus in and then it was like looking at you and your conditions and conditioning and what you're manifesting in the moment, the calm extreme. And it was like he'd look at you as if to say, you're caught up in that? Really? <laughs> and then he'd respond, and then he talked about his own mind like a child's mind. The condition would arise, he'd respond, and then it's gone. Just dwelling in the fundamental emptiness of our natural state of being. This is realizable for each one of us. To not only do that as the most easiest and simplest, most natural to our nature, nothing else to do but that, but also as a commitment to keep investigate, investigating, to keep exploring these prisons of the mind, keep releasing ourselves and keep dedicating ourselves to the activity of releasing so-called others. Of course, in a seamless reality, there are no others, but still for convention's sake, there's a lot of others that we can help, that we can serve. Until eventually, as Master Shunwa said about himself when asked about, who, who are you, Master? And this is him talking, but this is really stating what we all are. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. 
All of space is my university. My nature is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and giving are my function. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are my function. So on this day, may the luck of the Irish be with you as we practice our way of awakening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.